Hi there, friends, and welcome to my den. Today's episode is with a dear friend of mine, Chris Maslin, and you're going to hear some really fascinating perspectives today on everything from leadership to being able to manage a company with over 2,000 employees in the world of hospitality and luxury hospitality at that after two years of a global pandemic. Something about Chris that I absolutely love is his humility. So Chris is the vice president of talent and organizational development for the luxury Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. And his work is really overseeing 120 plus years of history, starting from the tycoons of George Vanderbilt back in 1895, who built this luxurious mansion that's now America's largest home. And really, Chris's day-to-day is helping the family, uh, the family-owned business, the owners of the company who are still running the business multiple generations later, and also overseeing the learning and development function of the entire organization. However, something unique about Chris is he was formerly a camp director. So you're going to get to hear the influence of how being a summer camp director for middle and high schoolers has influenced his ability to lead an incredibly wonderful and luxurious organization in the mountains of North Carolina. Today, you're going to hear everything from a personal board of directors to how to apply the learnings of being a camp director to your business, all the way through to tactical strategies that you can help your mid-level management staff implement to make sure every single person in your organization knows their why. I'm excited for you to hear this conversation, but before we dive in, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Overture Consulting. If you're a leader of a business that's mid-size, mid-size company, 20 to 50 million in revenue, and you want to improve the retention of your employees under age 30, be sure to sign up for our free masterclass held on the second and fourth Thursdays of every month, where we give you tactical strategies to make you a top native digital employer. Register at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where I, a Gen Zer, dissect collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. Why does this matter? There are now more Native Digitals than Native Analogs, and it's the Native Digitals who are rewriting every way we work, think, and play. I can't stand by and watch Native Analog leaders, businesses, and parents teeter on the precipice of relevance while Native Digitals push them off the cliff. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or one that's paid to pester you like a fly in your ear, you won't survive. Let's change that today. Hey, Chris. I am so glad to see you again. How have you been? I am fantastic, Hannah, and it is uh, a pleasure to be here with you today and um, great to spend time with you on uh, your new podcast. Yeah, this is crazy. How how long has it been since I was at Biltmore? Like three years now? Yeah, it's been about three years and we we miss you and think about you every day. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I moved back to Asheville, I was thinking, you know what? If COVID hadn't been happening, you know, maybe maybe I could have come back and joined the team, but you know, we would other welcome plans. you with open arms. You, you set a, an incredibly high bar and did such a great job for our team. So, well, yeah. at this rate, I've been thinking, you know, what did you say that a, a line cook or whatever could make at the, at the bar, cooking barbecue or something recently? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, any, uh, any and every job is now starting at least 15 minimum. And, uh, I think, yeah, most of our, um, most of our culinary positions would probably be, um, you know, in, in excess of that, probably anywhere from 18 to, to 20, depending upon the skill set. So, yeah, those are certainly in need these days, as you see everywhere. I drove by a sign today, a uh, marquee that just said, hey, just like everybody else, we're hiring. <laughs> and I, I appreciated their, their candor. So I, I feel that. And, um, yeah, 
No, it's so true. I I drove by a sign the other day. I forget where I was headed. We Michael and I went to Greenville for New Year's Eve. We went to a a 20s party with my sister and got dressed up in flapper outfits and you know, they it was like a ballroom dance. It was a blast, but on the way there was a sign that said no mask, getting, you know, getting fired for no vax, come work for Axe or whatever the company <laughs> was. They made it rhyme. It was pretty hilarious. Everybody's got a pitch these days. And yes, any job you can imagine could probably be yours right now. So I know it's insane. How, how are your kids holding up with everything? Are they headed back to school? Yes. Um, they're in good shape. We've been really, really blessed with that. Um, they're in a great school that's been, uh, I think on their game as far as COVID, which has also allowed the our kids to stay in school at least this year. Um, and they're loving it. They're doing great. Uh, we now have a teenager. So our daughter just turned 13. Our son just turned 10. And they are just living, um, living their best lives and doing great. I can't believe you've got a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. I know. I look so youthful. Like you would never imagine that I have a, a teenager. Well, when so you got those glasses hair. too, just that particular <laughs> style, I was like, yes, Chris has a personal brand, like a <laughs> recognizable brand. You actually look a whole lot younger even. Okay. Thank you. I will take that. And, you should uh, get them in like the different styles, like get a purple one, but same, same cut, but different colors. That's a whole nother level of, of hip that I have. I need to aspire to, but yeah, not, not quite there yet. I'm working on my personal brand. I'm taking my cues from you. Oh, well, I mean, if, if I've got the, uh, native digital thing going, I'm, I'm still working on mine too. So, you know, we're all all building the brand every single day. Right. I, I mean, I think that's, what's so important for people to remember. And I remind myself of each day, I don't want to get too tangential, but it's like, you know, the, the personal brand thing can sound really self-serving, and sound like such a businessy kind of angle that I think people are coming to the table with right now in the age of influencers and everybody's an expert kind of thing. But I, when I think about like what a, a personal brand really is and should be, it's just simply the way that you show up, right? It's just simply the way that you, uh, you know, show up in life with the people that you, you know, experience, whether they're in person or whether they're um, digital, is that like, are you about what you say you're about? Are you walking your own talk? And you know, that's the kind of brand that I, I want to be about. And I, I think you do too. I, I know that about you and your character. It's no, it's just about, is your character being presented in a way that, you know, models your values and, and your purpose. So I think that's where you and I, you know, are, are fully aligned. And, um, and that's what we're seeking to do as opposed to just having an, another angle on, a, on branding. Where do you feel like people lose that, that touch with being, you know, sh- showing up a certain way? Sorry, I have a, a, a train outside of our oh, office, it's so train. it's the train. Yes, many good memories that you have. Let it play uh, so everyone that. can hear what we're, uh, I mean, if there's a, that's the train that we used to deal with all the time. So I haven't yeah. heard that in a while. It's funny, and like the two offices that uh, that I've that I've been in at Biltmore, is, you know, before it's downtown, and um, that is, uh, that was either the typically fire trucks. So you're getting a fire truck interruption at least like four or five times a day. And then here it's a train at a newer office where, you know, that's at least five to 10 times a day. I would say. Absolutely. So there's just going to be some type of distraction just to kind of pull your mind away. But anyway, um, I think it's passing now so we can regroup. Um, I'm sorry. So coming back to your question before. Yeah. So how do you feel like, where do you feel like we miss that authenticity piece of showing up and that being our personal brand. I just think it has so much to do with when you're consistently posturing and overly concerned with the outward presence, as opposed to just saying, well, no, who am I? What do I care about? And, um, and how, how can I share something that can help people? Um, when I think when just the motivations are, are pure, <laughs> then it's an effective brand. Um, and it, and it's put out into the world in a, in a way that people connect with. I think when the me, when the motivations are, I won't say impure, but when they're more selfish and like personally motivated, when it's all about selling you something and all about, um, really trying to position yourself as maybe something that you're not, then obviously people aren't going to connect with that. And 
Um, I think that's really been a, an interesting thing for me is, you know, trying to just make sure that I'm just showing up as who I showing up in the same way online that you would experience me in real life. Um, when I think about personal branding. No, that's something I love so much about you. And also what something I learned from you the years I was at Biltmore and still continue to do is just making sure that I'm showing up authentically every, every single day. And I don't know if you saw my recent post, but I had a, a hater reach out to me. Mm -hmm. It was just like, you know, F you lady, just, you know, you're, I'm assuming he heard me on a podcast or something. And I, I committed several months ago, you know, I always try to be authentic as you and I talk about, but I committed recently to just really trying to be transparent about what goes on behind the scenes when, you know, you're either building a brand of influence or, you know, just, just being a human being in general, who's putting yourself out online in whatever capacity it is. And for some reason, just being able to talk about those things that are difficult, whether it's, you know, a hater reaching out or even just getting, you know, a bunch of people just, um, sugarcoating everything or, you know, buddy buddying up to you just because of what you're doing or whatever the case might be. That was something I had to learn recently is like, I need to be transparent about this because everyone's dealing with it. And it's, it's a key part of just having a brand that people can relate to, like being a a human (laughs) that people can relate to. Um, so, and something that you taught me that I, I really want to hear more about now, like how this has changed during COVID is you always, you know, talked about these leadership practices that are helping you show up authentically to work every day, but you also teach your kids leadership practices that, you know, me being, I guess I was 17 when I started working at Bill Morse, <laughs> which is crazy to think about, but you know, I was wow. 17 and, and still a teenager. So I remember you sharing in one training we had with the center, you know, you, you shared just about how you teach your kids leadership practices from a really young age. And I, I really want to hear more about like that. Like, how do you, how do you help your kids start practicing, like being a leader and being authentic and all those things at like, you know, age six, which I'm pretty sure that's how old your kids were when, (laughs) when we started talking about this. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that, you know, some of these things have, have resonated with you, you know, years later after you've left Biltmore and gone on to do other great things. Um, and thank you for sharing that. It's, it is something that for me is like, you know, the greatest legacy of, you know, my life will probably be with, you know, how my kids are, (laughs) are formed and then the impact that they leave on the world. Right. So, I mean, I'm trying to, um, care for a lot of people in my life and lead well in the various, um, spheres of influence that I have at, at work and, um, more broadly. And, you know, the, um, but at the end of the day, like the people that I really am passionate about, like leaving a dent on the world with it are you know, my kids and, and my wife. And, um, so yeah, it began, I think just more, um, as a early on conversation of, you're trying to be more reflective regularly with them about the way that um, they process the world and the way that they think about living with intentionality. And um, so, I mean, the, one of the simplest things that we do um, as a family is uh, you know, thinking about dinner time conversation. And it can happen at the dinner, dinner table. It can happen in the car. It can happen anywhere. It can happen at the end of the day. Um, and these are, you know, also journaling practices and things that could be incorporated for an individual. But you know, so often we think about like a dinner table conversation, which is like, how was your day? How, how did school go? And the stuff that you would ordinarily, you know, like maybe ask your kids and you may be fortunate to get a grunt. Um, you may be fortunate to like get a brief description of just like some subject that they studied and what happened or some, uh, you know, thing that maybe was embarrassing to them or whatever. But when the questions are asked, of course, with intentionality, um, and try to shape, help shape their character and, and the way that they're going to, you know, come back the next day to school or wherever they're going to soccer practice, whatever that, that, that matters. So beginning with the space of like saying, Hey, well, tell me about, um, something you did today that you were super proud of. So asking questions like that, like, what did you do today that you were super proud of? Um, and what is something you did today that brought you a lot of joy? What is something you did today, um, that, uh, you learned, um, and that, like, and not just a school subject, but like something that actually like you learned maybe a life lesson. 
um, asking them things that would, you know, help them reflect on their, you know, sense of gratitude for the world or the things that we're like actually thankful for that we can point back to like things that came your way today that we want to give thanks for. Um, and then specifically highlighting like, who did you help today? Um, how did you take all these gifts that you've been given, all the opportunities you had, who are the people that you helped? How did you help them today? And for in our kids at, you know, early ages, that was as simple as, were you like leader of the day? Did you um, get to, you know, hold the door open for the class as they all came through? Did you, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities that actually kids are given at school um, to shape their leadership behaviors um, and encouraging them to like, think about just the kids that are ostracized or the kids on the fringes and are they moving towards those people? Um, are they looking for ways to include others? And it's funny when I think about like all the stuff that's being talked about right now with, um, and this is really big for our organization, but diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. When I think about inclusive leadership, like we are shaping inclusive leaders in grade school. Like you're, you're actually creating inclusive leaders when you teach kids to move towards those that are unlike them, that are different than them, and the ones that are maybe on the fringe. So, you know, it's really important that, you know, we are building that up from day one in our kids and, and that one day they'll be in a business and they're going to hopefully look for ways to, you know, be more inclusive leaders in an organization and to connect with people that have diverse modes of thinking and, you know, different backgrounds and things like that. So there's all sorts of different ways you can process this, but those are some of the main things that we do. It's just, it's all about questions. Um, and one of my, uh, one of my good friends and mentors, you know, he talks about so many things, says so much about, um, you know, the way that we raise our kids, it's, it's more caught than it is taught. So it's recognizing that like, we have to model this and we lead with questions. Um, and that's no different with my kids than it is with my employees. <laughs> it's just right, it's all right. the same. <laughs> well, and something that stuck out to me so much when you first share that about how you ask your kids these intentional questions at the end of the day is it brought to mind, you know, my own experience. I've, I've been trying lately to be more intentional about not just focusing on what do I have to accomplish or how do I celebrate what I did today, but more about this outward reflection of uh, how do I you know, practice gratitude and how do I look at other people and, and consider you know, a win for my day as being, you know, oh my gosh, I actually got to help someone else. And that's what I love about those questions for your kids is it's got that one component of, what, you know, what were you proud of that you did today? Because it's important for them to recognize they have strengths and they're, you know, they've got something to add, but then also the second question of what, what are you grateful for and practicing that? And I actually took your advice these years ago and I bought a marker, like a, uh, a marker for a window or, you know, the ones that are erasable, why not? Mm. And I started practicing gratitude in the morning. So I'll just like write, write on the mirror fantastic. or write on the window, you know, here's, here's the thing that I'm grateful for. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking about me as a native digital, and this is the only show, the only time that I would ever have, you know, all my guests on, I ask them, how old are you? Because, you know, I'm 23. Remind me how old you are. I'm a very young 42. As you <laughs> very <highlighted>. young 42. <laughs> hey, I'll be 24 yes. in just a few days. All so right. just, you know, flip well, 42, 24. Happy early birthday. Thanks. So, uh, but your kids, you know, you're raising native digital kids mm -hmm. yeah. and something I've noticed as a native digital is it's so easy in the whirlwind of social media and having access to technology. It's so easy to get caught up in in this like brain space of narcissism, like this brain yes. space of selfishness and having everything in the world have to focus on, you know, me and what I accomplish and how I look and how I'm portrayed to the world. And we forget so often to look outward. So like if, if you were a native digital, like if you, if you were growing up and you were, you know, Ella Brooks age and you're like, you're 13, you're a teenager in this type of world, what advice, what, what would advice for your, would your 42 year old self give to your 13 year old self for how to navigate the craziness? Well, it would start with probably not trying to give her that advice directly as father to daughter. Um, because what I think I have learned and many parents realize this is that, you know, some of the best, uh, advice is only going to be received through, through a, a third party or a trusted mentor or friend, as opposed to a parent, um, 
you know, all the stuff that we'll say a million times will finally be absorbed by that other trusted friend or mentor. Um, but it's a great question that, um, you know, quite honestly, I'm not hundred percent sure how to answer, but I think it, you know, the, the main thing that I, I would want to help her focus on, on a daily basis is, um, it's just being other centric, um, you know, and, you know, pointing back to the, the places and times where she has, um, felt, uh, I think left out again, or excluded or times where, you know, she maybe was a little bit embarrassed and, um, and like those stories and experiences for her were important. And that's where it comes back again. And I think to like the point I was making earlier about inclusive leadership is just that like when we begin to think about how do we live a life in service to others, as opposed to service to self, um, you know, like our, our entire perspective on the world changes. Right. So like the, the wins that we would ordinarily think about, like how many, likes or how many, um, you know, views or whatever, all the metrics that we might use or that, and that she's going to be growing up with, you know, to help understand like, um, you know, the world through social media or whatever the case might be. Like if we flipped those metrics on their head to say, well, no, like again, how many people did I help today? How many people did I have a meaningful conversation with today? How many people did I, um, pause long enough to like actively listen to them to where I could like repeat back, what I heard from them in terms of their story or their struggles or, um, you know, just something they're experiencing right now. It's like, ideally we would be measuring things in the, in the meaningful experiences that we have with others and the way that we make other people feel, as opposed to just the things that are validating the way that we look, um, in the world. Um, so again, and nothing, this is, I think, and this is, is, is fresh or unique, but I, I think it just everything about the world that the native digitals are growing up in, and it's not that different from analog. There's just, we didn't have the same, um, maybe the same tools or, or platforms. Right. But it's, um, the world is designed to <laughs> just satisfy self, um, and flipping to a lens of, you know, how do we become others centric, um, and, in, and living a life in service to others, um, you know, that's the perspective that we, we should each have, right? And that's how we leave a, a lasting legacy. That's how we, I think, live a, a more meaningful and and, uh, and and impactful life. Well, and something that you said, I mean, I, I can just imagine all the if the if every child was putting that in practice, can you imagine the middle school conversations of all these, you know, little essentially little adults walking around asking their friends, you know, how are you really, you know, can, tell me, tell me your story, tell me what's been going on instead of, you know, oh my gosh, did you see the new, you know, outfit I got the other day and how great I looked compared to, you know, my friend who posted online the other day. I I heard a conversation with, you know, as you know, I have the 15 year old brother and a 17 year old sister. And when they get together with their friends and they're all, you know, on their phones and they're comparing Instagram posts and all of that, it's, it's, it's very fascinating to hear the types of conversations that happen, which, you know, I was not immune to as a teenager either, where, you know, they're just comparing every little detail. I mean, scrutinizing the way that a friend's leg looked in a picture or scrutinizing how, you know, they had one piece of hair flying in the breeze out, you know, that didn't look like Yikes. it was put together. Just the types of, of criticism that's happening. And it's even if they're not posting a comment and explicitly saying, you know, your hair looked like shit, they're still saying that to each other, you know, just the the kids on the back end just talking about people. And it's, it's just added this whole new layer of sarcasm and derogatory-ness, I'm going to make up a word, <laughs> derogatory um, perspective that they're using. So it, that, that to me, like what you just described about, about how a child or a middle schooler or a young teenager should be approaching their life, you know, being other centric is such an important skill for parents to be able to instill in their children. And it's so much easier nowadays when you have, you know, the tools of comparison that are not just, you know, in person, face to face or over the phone, but also looking at photos online or videos online and having an additional way to criticize someone. It, it's just, it's to me, there's some components of it that are incredibly fascinating and others that are really sad. So, um, I, so I'm really curious to, to kind of jump back in time a little bit for you too, or like to hear your story. Cause I, I don't think I've ever really asked you much about 
your experience before Biltmore. Like it's so easy to talk about Biltmore because we had these common shared experiences and obviously there's so much happening in recruiting and retention and all that. But what what happened before Biltmore? Where where were you? What do you do? And and what was yeah, what what was your role and how'd you get to Biltmore? Yeah, so it, thanks for asking. Um, and it is such a, it, gosh, it feels like ancient history now. I just had a thing pop up and it was like, oh, 15 years at Biltmore. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I had the hard, uh, very hard realization that I've been here that long. And, and it's all, it's been a, an incredible ride. And I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've been given. Um, but yeah, the, the ser- season before was super formative and impactful for me. So the, the job that, um, position that I held, prior to Biltmore, um, was, uh, was actually a camp director, um, about, uh, just 20 minutes down the road at a place called Ridgecrest summer camps. Um, and, uh, there are two camps there and, and I was, uh, I was actually my formal role was as assistant director for, for both camps and grew up at these camps. And it was a, a fantastically, uh, like wonderful experience for me. And so getting to be there as a, you know, on full-time staff year round, uh, like getting to recruit, staff and, and kind of work through that and um, develop those staff and also bring um, campers in was a wonderful experience. Um, and I, I did some work in with a number of financial institutions prior and also um, ended grad school and, um, you know, a handful of things before as well. But that was the most uh, formative job prior to Biltmore. And it's what gave me a platform for coming here. And it was something that I realized has uh, shaped me into like who I am today and, and a in a really big way in terms of understanding relationships and that whole idea of like really trying to be other centric, um, helping form my core values, um, my purpose. Um, and then it allowed me to build relationships that actually led me to build more. Um, I wasn't actually looking for a job change or anything else, but I was, uh, asked to interview for, for a role, um, basically because of the, the network that I had built and the, personal brand, I, th- I believe that I had established where I had the credibility, um, to be asked to interview for a role here, um, and came on and, uh, again, have now been here 15 years. Okay. So, I have yeah. to ask camp director, Chris, back yes. 15 years ago, when you were, when you were camp directing, what mm-hmm. types, what types of games did you guys play at camp 15 years ago? So, um, I mean, the big one is Foursquare. It's still kind of a, it is the thing there. Yeah, it's it's just the thing at this camp, oddly enough. All the others are just crazy, fun, creative games that um, that all actually had, I think, again, like elements of team dynamics, leadership, um, interpersonal dynamics as well. Like all those things are kind of baked into all these games and activities. And um, there's just no no better place like to really become independent and figure out like who you are. Um, then I think then camp, I, I wish every single kid in, in the world had an opportunity to, to go to a sleepaway camp and have that experience. It, um, it is, it is super powerful and, um, certainly was, was important for me, but yeah, sports girls really big. And there are all these other, you know, it's big, fun, crazy, creative games that, that we got to do there that were, that were a blast. But, um, yeah. I remember when I went to summer camp, probably, guess I went in middle and high school and you know I was homeschooled so we had I think it was six days it was prior to the normal summer camp season so like early May I believe it was and (laughs) funny story I had this experience where we'd be playing one of the big group lawn games like you know all 400 campers or however many there were would get together in the biggest field and I forget the name of the game but it was it was a, t- a game where we were divided into teams and you had to essentially cross enemy lines, you know, between the six quadrants or whatnot to collect different objects and, you know, run back and, and tag your base. Well, I was probably eight or nine years old. No, I had to have been older than that. I was old enough to have a crush. So I think I was like 11, maybe. <laughs> and I had I had a crush on this guy who was on an opposite team. And he was probably in the quadrant next to me. And there was this big, big guy at camp. Like, you know, pro- he was probably 15 or 16, probably weighed over 200 pounds. Just like a big, like monstrous guy for me at, you know, 10 or 11 years old. 
And he was trying to deliver one of these objects to the home base. And he, I, I look up for one split second. I see this massive person just running at me full speed. I'm trying to protect the base. And he was running at me full speed. And I had just a quick sec- second to glance around and see him coming. And I had no time to just mentally think, like, get out of the way of the base or he's going to crash into me. Well, the guy that I liked tackled me from the side <laughs> to get me out of the way of this, this guy running toward me. And I have that memory from like 10 or 11 years old of like best times at summer camp. You know, all the counselors were making fun of us after that uh, because of, you know, that experience that introduced me to my crush by him tackling me. So anyway, that, that was my memory <laughs> of summer camp. Yeah, well, I mean, if a, a tackle is one of the best ways to, you know, land you know, a, a new, new romantic relationship. So sure. <laughs> With an 11 year old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An 11 year old, uh, relationship there. So that's a great story. I love it. Yeah. So I, so when you were camp directing, like what were some of the, the experiences that you think taught you the most about leadership and how to, how to work with people of all different ages and, and all different backgrounds? Well, it, it was a really unique opportunity because I was given such autonomy um, at that stage of life to like rethink the way that we did um, recruitment of staff, to think about the way that we you know, branded the experience for finding the best staff. Because the whole thing hinges on staff, um, right? Like like everything. I mean, it all hinges on your people. Um, that is the business model. Like you can, everybody can do crazy games and have zip lines or you know a lake or this or that, but like the quality of the staff. Um, that's the frontline experience for, for, you know, the end client, which is the kid and ultimately the parent. Um, so I think the way that we got to rethink that, um, that was huge and really designing a staff training that was much more intentional, um, in the way that we set that group up to like help, help them understand themselves in the way that, you know, they were going to be present for these kids that summer, um, and rethinking maybe even the assumptions that they were coming to the table with, Um, but I, that was, it was tremendous for me. When you think about the fact that these camps effectively hand, like parents come and hand over their most precious asset, you know, for a week or two or, or more, um, to college students, it's bananas. I mean, why does anybody in the right mind do it? But it's because again, these college students can convey life lessons and experiences in a way that, again, a, a parent or, you know, a teacher never could, um, so the, I think that the, that was the main thing for me is like I was given just incredible autonomy. And so our executive director who's there and is still there, um, he was just so trusting in me. Like we had a long relationship because I'd grown up there, but he allowed me to just totally rethink and redesign anything and everything we did around staffing and programming and operations and marketing. And um, that was a really incredible opportunity. For, at, at that time, I was in my 20s. And um so it was like anything and everything that I had ever thought about, like wanting to do, like I was given free reign to do it. Um, and I, I'm grateful. I mean, I think that it was, uh, and it, we saw fruit and we, we, we tried stuff and it didn't work and we tried other stuff and it worked and we just kept you know, building and growing. And there's, there was a lot of continuous improvement and they're doing stuff now that like I'm blown away by, cause it's like, they're doing things I, I wasn't capable of even doing. If I was still there at this point in my career, I think like they're doing unbelievable stuff as far as building that, uh, building that program, building the brand, building the experience and, um, and leading. And one of my best friends, um, took over there. And again, it's just like right time, right place that I was able to come to Biltmore. That was a great fit for me and then great fit for him to move into that role at camp. So, um, autonomy matters, but no, no kidding. I, I do want to ask something you highlighted a second ago, because this this is something I've been putting a lot of thought into lately is this idea. You said that, you know, how do, how do parents trust, you know, a bunch of 20 year olds to care for their kids? But I think what you said a second ago is spot on about the fact that parents can do so much, but once you get to a certain point, it's up to a mentor who's closer to their age or to their, you know, remembering what it was like to be 13, 14, 15, whatever, to be able to have those shared experiences, but also only be, you know, six, seven or eight years down the road from that child. And and they have a, they have almost a greater impact in certain areas than a parent or grandparent or whomever could ever have. 
And one of the things I was thinking about in an organization, and I wrote about this in, in my book, is I'm talking about the power of mentorship and specifically this idea that mentorship, as most people would describe it, is, you know, whoever gets to the top of the mountain, you better put a rope down, right? Like you be someone who you reach the pinnacle, you've done great things in your career, and then you throw the rope down and help the younger generation. Well, that's great. We need mentors like that. But I don't think we have enough conversations about this middle type of mentorship that exists between people who are much closer together in terms of their life experience or how, you know, their ages. So for example, having, say you have, you know, a 22 year old who just graduated or even a 20 year old intern who's in school, they're probably going to gain more from a mentor in certain areas who's, you know, 27, 28, maybe 30, someone who can say, you know what, I was at this company in the same position you're in just a few years ago. And let me show you some of the things that helped me be successful versus having a mentor as many organizations structure them who is, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years older, who's had a whole lot more tenure and experience mentoring someone younger. What do you think about that idea of, having like these mid-level, in a sense, mid-level mentors or mid-age, I don't, I don't know what to call it or what, how you would term this, but like mid-experience mentors who are more like filling this this gap that exists between mentorship opportunities. Um, yeah, I think there's just, there's so many opportunities for mentors, right? And it doesn't have to be, the mentor doesn't ever have to be in, an expert to be a mentor. Um, that's where I think it's actually like, maybe more like three levels of mentorship. It may be the, you know, like the much more senior person that has like experienced a lot of life and is way ahead of you in life. And then there's like the person that's maybe just a, more of that mid-level that you're talking about. And then there's the fact that like a whole lot of mentors can actually just be really wise friends um, that are maybe the same, same stage of life as you right now. But like they're the ones that are willing to ask you really hard questions and challenge you and like push you on things and make you uncomfortable. Um, but that mid-level um mentor, I think is, is certainly vital, but it it has so much to do with, I think a lot of people just don't ever see themselves as mentors and they don't move towards people, um, in that way, in in a way that they realize they can actually give something, um, you know, to a generation that's maybe just a little bit behind them or even again, their generation. Um, and I will say like one of the most, and in, in reading your book and thinking about like a lot about mentorship through my life is, uh, Again, like I said before, a lot of people don't see themselves as mentors. So what has been the most beneficial thing for me with all of my mentor relationships is like I've pretty much been the one to initiate them. And I think that's what I would hope that every, um, not just the native digital, but like that anybody and everybody in life would do is that they would be the one to like to go first. That's one of the things I like, I lean heavy on as a, one of my little um, mantras is go first. Like you've got to be the one to move towards people and initiate and because a lot of people just don't see themselves as mentors. But like, if you say like, Hey, no, I see this in you. I value your life experience. I value your perspective. You know me. I need more of you in my life. I need to be challenged. Um, I, I need someone that is going to, you know, help hold me accountable and encourage me and point me back on the path. Like when I, when I stray, like I need you in my life. Um, and it doesn't have to be heavy. It's like, you're not asking for, Hey, we're going to have a formal sit down and you're committing to me to be a mentor for the next five years of my life. It's like, no, it doesn't you just say, Hey, can we just have a cup of coffee? Cause like, I really enjoy being around you and being with you and you make my life richer. Like that's, that's how good mentor relationships start. But I find at least for me, they've happened because I've taken that step. It's, it's often not like mentors, you know, seeing a potential mentee and be like, you know, Hey, uh, let's, let's go and do X, Y, Z. It's like, it's often more the, the mentee that makes the first move. And that's been my personal experience. And I I hope that more people would think about that of who are those people that need to serve on your personal board of directors? Who are those people that could be potential mentors for you and that you will seek out those people? Um, I'm sure that plenty of folks would be honored to say yes and to at least grab that first cup of coffee and it can evolve from there. Um, But yeah, I think it's all three levels. What do you mean by personal board of directors? Um, Yeah, I I probably use that term... um, I use that term with a lot of folks, um, but because I've built it for myself and I try to help everybody establish that as they think about their own leadership and their own like life experience. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, that you're in a leadership role to have a personal board of directors, but 
of course, CEOs have to report to somebody, right? And so even if you're at the top of the organization, you still report to a board of directors. And so there's a professional board of directors if you run a, run a company. Um, but everybody in life, anybody and everybody should have their own personal board of directors. And that should be the people that care about them, the people that um, have some life experience and that will will and do invest in them. And so, you know, there's people that will make up that group, you know, it's probably going to start number one with, with a parent or parents um, and having an open and trusting relationship with them. But then, you know, you build out from there and it's going to be current former bosses. It's going to be the, the camp counselors and camp directors like we talked about before. It could be um, people that are at the peer level or maybe some of those that are at the mid-level. Ideally, there are also some people that are, um, you know, that, that know you, again, in a professional setting and a personal setting. But these are folks that are of high character, high trust. They are willing to offer challenging words. They see into you things that you won't see into yourself. Like they, they see your blind spots um, and they see your gifts and they can help call out your gifts and say, like, you know, this is how you can, can and should use your gifts. Um, and those are people that you're regularly, re, you know, engaging with. Like on a, it, you have a, ideally like at least a monthly touch base with um, every single one of the monthly board of directors that the people that would sit on that um, board for you and with you. Um, and they should know enough about you to know your goals and to know your desires. And, you know, um, um, again, on a personal and professional level. So I, I, I love the concept. Like it's, it's nothing universal, like, or uh, I think earth shattering, but it is important that it is shaped and that it is a robust and kind of um, broad group of people that you have in your life that can help, help speak into your life. How many people would you suggest putting on your personal board? I think if you're just starting out, I mean, it, it, it's probably just going to be like three to five. Um, and then as, as that evolves over time, you know, it can get up to like 10 or 12. Um, you know, like I'm at a place where I, I've got a solid 12 folks in that, on that board for me right now that, um, that I'm connecting with um, quite regularly and, um, again, I'm sharing my goals, my struggles, um, and anything and everything with them. And, uh, I am consistently challenged by those people. Um, and it is so easy to become comfortable. Um, and, you know, podcasts and books and, you know, all these things that we do try and, you know, take in and drink up as self-improvement mechanisms. Like they'll only get you so far unless you have people like actual humans <laughs> that are kicking your butt and, also encouraging you. So it's, it's both support and accountability. So true. So true. And I, it's, it's funny you say this because one of the beliefs that I hold very strongly, and it's actually the kind of the synopsis for this podcast is is one of the main reasons I'm doing this is I believe that for me being, you know, a native digital and looking out into the world of companies that are dying. And I, I actually, one of the things I'm going to be doing on this podcast as I get to talk with more and more people as I'm developing, um, Hannah's hit list. So these are the companies that are not, they're, they're failing to adapt to the new generation, whether that's new generation of consumers or employees or whatever it might be. But one of the beliefs I hold very strongly is that, if companies don't have a native digital voice on their leadership team, their projects, their board of directors, then they're going to become irrelevant. But what you made me think of just now is it's not just important to have a native digital on your company board of directors. It's important to have one in your personal board of directors. So you know, I'm thinking about all the leaders I know who tend to gain the most you know, mentorship and influence and guidance from people older than them. And I would encourage, you know, next time I even speak with these people is to to look down and think, you know, how can I learn from my kid or, you know, from something that a, a friend of my child or my grandchild said recently that really made me think. And it made me, you know, it makes me want to ask you, like, is there anything that your kids have said recently that has made you just stop for a second and think, oh my gosh, I, I never really thought about that when I was their age, or I, I can't believe they're thinking about that already. Is, is there anything they've said recently that comes to mind? 
I'm not sure that I can point to any one thing, but I do, th- I do see in both of them like a, a level of curiosity about the world um, that that I'm grateful for and that is inspiring. So, um, you know, and that's that's just one of those things we're like really trying to instill in, in our kids more than anything is just a sense of curiosity. Um, it it's it's curiosity again about the world and about people, right? And so much of you know, your movement with radical empathy is it starts from a place of curiosity. It starts with like the person that I'm interacting with right here, right now. Like, what can I learn from this person in this moment? Like that to see, to believe if you start with this belief that like whoever you're talking to or, or even people that you might pass and, and, you know, be in, in the same room with at any point in time, like there's gotta be something I can learn from this person. Um, and, and what could that be? And that can start with, you know, hey, tell me your story um, or, you know, tell me your, your thought on X, Y, Z or, you know, what's, what, what did, what book did you just read that inspired some thinking in you? Like there's all sorts of questions that can come from that. But I think when we start with a place of like every single person that's out there in the world, I can learn something from. Um, and that begins with curiosity, right? That uh, it changes the way that we pursue relationships and it changes the way that we think about um people. And it also helps shift the focus again to be more other centric than me centric. I imagine you had to have learned so much of that from being a camp director because you had no option, right? <laughs> All these kids around like, yeah. Hey, what did they call you? Uh, uh <laughs> Well, it's all, you know, there, I guess there are like weird camp names and stuff. I mean, I was generally Maz or, um, Maslin. There's just a lot of, yeah, you end up with last name stuff a lot of times. And, um, so yeah, Maz was, and that was a holdover actually from like high school even, but, um, I had yeah. no, I never heard that. <laughs> Do you yeah. have, was it like M-A-S or M-A-Z? Do you have like a t-shirt that- with like M-A-Z? <laughs> <laughs> no t-shirts were involved. Um, but no, it's more like the M-A-Z, which is not, you know, correct spelling of my name but it just I guess phonetically it kind of worked um but no I never came up with like a cool hip-hop name or anything fun like that so just just Maz or Maslin it sounds like a superhero name (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's go with that you have like Maz yes I don't know what 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 would be that superpower though that'd be correlated with it gosh I don't I do not know I feel like my superpower right now is just embarrassing my kids so that's (laughs) that very good at that Wait, there has to be a story behind this. What have you done recently to embarrass them? Oh, it's it's anything and everything with, you know, making making up songs to everything that I can possibly think of uh, to, you know, dance moves um, that I hope that their friends don't see, like just off in the corner, just to, but they I make sure that they see just enough um, to where, yeah, they are embarrassed. But I think I'm walking a fine line of like the, like it's admiration and embarrassment. I think there's a, in a very fine line you can walk as a parent so okay okay hold on wait wait, wait. what was the song like three years ago that was the, the your like theme song in life is wait was it um uh da 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 what you dance 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 what was that <laughs> oh yeah yeah we rocked that. No, that was uh justin timberlake that's right yeah we we that one is old school now um but yeah we did bust that one out regularly um that was the yeah what is the name of that song anyway it's a uh, uh, you know, anyway, I'll have to pull it up, but whatever oh the gosh. Justin Timberlake song Sick was, up. it was really popular. It was, it was more than three years ago, but that was a really fun one. Um, but our big one, the big one that we've actually jammed on for the last year has been Harry Styles treat people with kindness. Um, so I would highly recommend that to everybody. Um, and the video is super fun for that one. A lot of great dance moves. I don't know that as I've well. seen the music so video for it. Check out the video. It's some, some really great dancing in that one but always a good reminder for uh our each of us is uh we're treating people with kindness each and every day it's gotta have that that nugget if you listen to harry styles <laughs> I the suppose. For the kids. there's probably some really awful nuggets and some of his other stuff i'm not super familiar with that that one landed for me and they they like it so i love harry good. styles i think yeah. i think it's pretty pretty great it's kind of interesting to see someone exit a band like One Direction and then still make it and come out with yeah. better music than happened in One Direction. You know, that's because One Direction was so millennials. And now, you know, <laughs> now Harry Styles is like super cool with Gen Z. So it's it's interesting to see. Good. I'm glad to know that I'm like, ran, like a little bit 
connected to something that is cool with Gen Z. So you just made me feel better about myself. For <laughs> well, you sure. got Gen Z kids. You got to be close you do to Gen Z somehow. kids. Yes. But, um, working to stay in, in touch with what all the Gen Z hip kids are doing these days. And you, you helped me, uh, you know, make that happen. So. Well, good, good. I, I'm glad I served that purpose. And okay, so you talked about recently, I, I watched your video about spending more time and energy as a company on building a great culture instead of spending so much time and effort and money and energy on just recruiting. And I, this was so powerful to me. And it's, it's a great discussion about culture and just society in general. But, you know, we've for the past two years have seen signs on the side of the road of, you know, now we're hiring and here's, you know, how much we're paying and hiring bonuses and blah, blah, blah. And this, the thing that keeps coming to my head is all of these companies are, are sitting at a point where they haven't dug their well before they needed water. So now they're just sporadically advertising, you know, here's how much we're paying and, you know, please bet we beg of you come work for us. So when you posted that video about, you know, this idea of culture centric recruiting, it resonated a lot with me and the thoughts I've been having. So what did you mean by that? Like what, what would be your approach as you know, you're, you're one of you're you're the visionary at Biltmore for, in, in terms of creating a culture that is magnetic and, and being in a position where you're essentially responsible for helping the entire employee base. How many employees are there now? 20? We're 2,100. 2,100. Okay. Yeah. So still growing from COVID. Yeah. Um, but so 2,100, over 2,000 people being, you know, being these, these essentially soldiers of carrying this message about how great of a culture Biltmore has and how great of a, an employer. So like, what are your thoughts on how, how to build great culture that does the recruiting by itself? Well, there, yeah, there's so much out there on culture building, um, for sure. And there are things that, I mean, I think that have worked well for us, but I mean, that, that theory, and when I kind of started thinking about it of more like how much time and energy we put into the recruitment, um, process and, and onboarding process. And I mean, a ton of time and money, it's just, it's astounding. Um, it's just say like, Hey, how much are we also missing the boat. I mean, us as a company, but I think most companies missing the boat on just saying like, here, are you putting in as much, if not more time into just becoming a great company that people want to come work for and where your culture is magnetic. And, and for us, I mean, even though, even in an age of like a million different ways to recruit people and connect with people now, the number one way that we still find people at Billmore is still referrals. Right. So, and I think great businesses, ideally that, that should be your target. I think for all businesses, your number one recruiting channel, you should aspire to make sure it's still referrals, like always still and always is referrals. And I think if you're doing right, doing things right, like it, it will be. Um, so like that's still top for us and we want it to, to maintain that. But the only way that we're going to get referrals, the only way that we're going to find more great people for Biltmore is if we're providing a great employee experience in the first place. Um, and if we are, if we have our culture right, if we have our values right, if we have uh, if the, if the DNA of the company, you know, actually walks the talk, um, then, you know, people are going to actually make those referrals for us and bring us the best people that are like them and that already get the culture, um, and they get, you know, the, the purpose and, um, and mission of the, the company. So, I mean, in terms of actually building that culture, um, where we, where I think we began is it's very much, um, it's, it's again, it's starting with why cynic didn't invent that that's been around forever. He, he made a ton of money off of it. Hats off to him. But I mean, it's just being a purpose driven organization. Right. So, um, and we believe that like we are all about preservation. Um, that is our purpose for being as a company and we do it through gracious hospitality. So it kind of speaks to the why and the how, um, but we want to be around, we've been around for 125 years now. We want to be around for at least another 125 years, um, and and we get to be again a part of something that is a legacy. So I used that word earlier, and there's just not too many things in life that are gonna be around after you. So like, what kind of mark did you leave on the world? And whether somebody at Biltmore works in, um, you know, in our housekeeping department, or whether they're an executive, like they're all actively contributing to that preservation mission. So like, 
we talk about that all the time. Um, we point back to it. We tell stories about it. Um, and we are making sure that everybody understands and feels connected to the big picture mission and, and they understand like how their role contributes. So I think that's such a big thing is like every single employee needs to understand like how their role actually contributes to the mission of the organization. So it's not enough to just say, Hey, this is our mission. It's no, how does your job, how do, how do you contribute directly to the mission? And then, uh, and then like, what is your why individually? So there's kind of the organizational why and there's the personal why. And so getting our, our leaders um, and direct like frontline supervisors to talk with employees about that. Um, so they're actively you know, connecting the dots, helping connect the dots for employees between themselves and the organizational why, but then also pointing back to their personal why and helping them discover that and live out of that. And then we, um, we made it a point um, a number of years ago um, to find like, again, simple tools to help our, our leaders um, find ways to engage employees in meaningful conversation and, again, connect them to, like, what matters. So for us, um, you know, like, our long-range corporate goals are built around employee engagement, guest satisfaction, and organizational performance. So a lot of that is, again, not unique to Biltmore, um, but we wanted to say, okay, how, how can we make this applicable on a daily basis? Is, um, you know, if we're trying to provide a great, you know, employee experience and focus on employee engagement and get all this connects back to culture, then, you know, one of the questions that we want managers and leaders to be asking their employees, like daily on a daily basis is number one, Hey, how, how did you help support your teammates today? Like, tell me just like the questions I was asking earlier about to my kids, like we built some systems and we're trying to regularly push these questions out to our folks to say, what did you do today? Like just one thing you did to actively support your team teammates, like the people that you serve on a team with, what did you do to help support them? And we know that if, if everybody is supporting one another and holding each other mutually accountable and leaning into their strengths, like that's great. Like that's going to help us achieve our employee engagement objective, our long range goal, right. Of employee engagement um, and building a fantastic employee experience. Um, and then secondly, that guest satisfaction, um, long range corporate goal for us and, and really something that we believe, again, drives the preservation mission was to have our managers and frontline supervisors ask, hey, what is one thing you did today to provide gracious hospitality um, to our guests? So did you do just one thing you did today to provide an, an amazing wow kind of experience or we call a profitable wow, like always balancing the um, you know, making sure that like the, the, the wow is something that can also be profitable and, and help further the organization's mission. Um, but what's one thing you did to really knock the socks off of our guests today? And if they're actively thinking about that, whether they're front or back of house, then they can make that happen. And as long as we're empowering them in that way, they can do it too. And then third on the organizational performance, can we tie this back to our mission and say, Hey, what's one thing you did today um, to create a profit for preservation, right? So um, the profit for preservation is really critical for us. Like the only way that we sustain Biltmore for another 125 years is through generating a profit. We're a privately held family owned company. We're not, not for, uh, we don't get any government funding. Um, there's, you know, it is all us. So we have to generate a profit for, um, the company to be viable into the future. But we want everybody to be thinking about how are you a good steward of the resources that you were given today? Um, you know, did you help um, provide, you know, the, the right product or service at the right time for that guest so that it generated the appropriate profit for the business that day? So if each and every one of our employees can be thinking about and then acting upon those three questions and they're being coached and encouraged by their frontline supervisors and even by other people in the organization at the, at the peer level, like if they're doing those three things, like they get it, they're, like they're crushing it. And that's what we want to see. And that creates the employee experience that creates the culture that we want to have um, that then leads to more referrals, more people coming in that will deliver the Biltmore experience to our guests that again, will um, you know, have a business that is here and an experience that's here for um, generations to come. So long way of answering your question, but I hope that makes sense. Again, it's all about the power of questions and it's all about um, trying to really be intentional about the way that we, set up our leaders to engage their employees, even in small, um, like kind of micro, micro ways, uh, micro ways, Not <laughs> uh, micro waves, <laughs> uh, little, little micro opportunities, we'll say, um, on, on a daily basis to help make that happen. I mean, it's, it makes complete sense that Biltmore is a best and brightest employer for what, two or three years in a row now on that list. Yeah. We've done that for yeah three years, um, running and, uh, hope to achieve that again this year. 
Yeah. So, okay. So getting a little bit more tactical into that, because there was so much there. And one, one of the organizations that I'm working with right now, one of their biggest challenges is finding those micro moments within mid-level management specifically to have opportunities to have better conversations with their staff and build that why and help their staff and figure out their personal whys and how that connects with the brand. So let's, so taking an example, say, um, your, say the gardening department, the horticulture and gardening staff at Biltmore who are constantly, you know, their day-to-day work. If, if I recall correctly, you know, they're, they're out in the greenhouse, they're out in the gardens, they're doing a lot of work spread out. They're not working necessarily with their entire team in a, in the physical same location all the time. They're spread out about, you know, thousands of acres or hundreds of acres, at least doing various work. So what does it look like in that department? For example, what, what would a leader do a mid-level leader who's trying to instill these practices of asking better questions and helping people find their why, what would that look like on a daily basis? I think there, again, we talked about uh, a little bit about strengths and um, looking at ways to call out, like identify and call out and encourage strengths in people regularly. So um, it's another big part of what we're seeking to do is to get our leaders to identify the strengths and to say like, hey, this is how I see you living out of those strengths. Um, and then helping connect those back to the, the uh, again, the big picture. Um, so, for instance, I mean, one of the things that we will talk a lot about, especially with, um, like, the team, the horticulture team, um, is, is the recognition that, like, they are creating this sense of beauty. Like, that team is using their strengths. Like, they have they have vision. They have design sense. They have um, have patience. I mean, there's so much that just, like, that is kind of natural and intuitive for that job. Um, that we want to, again, we can call out and encourage just in them if they're hired for that role, but also then connecting it to um, them and helping them understand, like, when people drive onto the estate, like, that's their first impression. Like, that is their first wow. So as they're driving down the approach or they they make that turn onto the estate, that's when the jaw hits the ground and you're seeing, like, this incredible landscape. And the guest experience begins before they even interact with a person because of the touch that someone working in that horticultural role has had to create, to create a thing of beauty. Um, and I think like helping them understand again, the, the impact of their work, like we talked about before is that we want each of our leaders to help um, employees understand and connect back to the, the big picture why, but also just like can you understand the importance of their work um, and just why it's so vital to the organization. Um, but you know, those are some things that we would regularly point to and, and highlight like, these are the strengths that we see in you. And this is how it's contributing to blowing someone's mind, making their day, um, providing this great experience that we get to be part of people coming here and having a great family vacation or an anniversary or all sorts of things that they get to celebrate. And like, we get to be part of making that amazing Um, and connect that back to their story and talking through like, when was the last time, like, you know, you, you had an experience like this, where you were treated really well um, where people were like proactively thinking about your needs, um, and how did it make you feel? I mean, we want we want to. So help I want to pause you there for a too. second because the when you say we, are you saying like the training team is helping instill that, or is this the manager, like you know the the frontline manager who's managing, say, the division of the horticulture team that's taking care of the greenhouse? Are they are they in a huddle in the morning asking these types of questions? Yeah, it's both and. I mean, it's definitely ingrained throughout our learning and development, um, you know, and all of the stuff that they push out. Um, these are elements that are that are part of their programming. But where the rubber meets the road is really with the frontline leaders, um, and so those are yes, part of daily stand-up meetings, um, part of um, just regular conversations, and we're you know revising our performance management process right now to be more coaching based and more collaborative in that way with employees, like to, to help hit on these type of, um, of opportunities as well. Um, so it's, it's much more about that relationship between a, a direct supervisor and, a, and an employee. That, that helps a lot. And one thing that I love about Biltmore and just about all, all the work that I got to do years ago was even though from the outside, 
Biltmore is seen as, you know, you're on the list of best and brightest employers and we're seen as, you know, a pinnacle of hospitality and the top of top of the game. I love how you talk about this, this idea that you use words like we're working on this or we're trying, we're trying this. I mean, every time I speak with an organization who looks at my background at Biltmore and they say, oh my gosh, if we could just get to where Biltmore is, that would be the pinnacle of our success. And, and my thought process is yes, absolutely get to where Biltmore is. But then the part of part of getting to where Biltmore is, is understanding that you're never fully arrived. You're always adapting and changing. And, and you can hear it from the lips of, of Chris Maslin, who's the VP over Tala and organizational development. And it's just, that's what's amazing. Just this sense of humility and constant change. And it's so important for organizations to understand that type of progressive change is so important on the employer side, but it's also so critical on the consumer side, like understanding how do we as organizations adapt to the native digital generation and connecting with a younger consumer audience, whether it's through, you know, online products or taking an experience out of the physical and into the digital, like what do those things look like? And we could have, I'm sure we could talk for hours about, (laughs) about that piece and, and what Biltmore's thinking about in terms of you know, what direction to even head with the physical experience and the digital experience. But um, anyway, it's, it's been like an hour, so we need to wrap this up, but I, I've so enjoyed this conversation and I really would love to, I mean, I know you and I will probably have lunch in a few weeks and keep going, but I, I think so many of these things that we've talked about, like your camp experience and being a director all the way up to now running a hospitality organization and seeing how, you know, how the impact of COVID has shaped employment and and that direction is just fascinating. So I'm so glad I get to learn from you all the time. Well, thanks so much for having me. I learn so much from you all the time. I did when we get to work together directly and continue to today as we continue our relationship and um certainly some of your you are my my native digital um on my personal board of directors for <laughs> sure and i'm grateful for you um and yeah thanks for the opportunity it's just, it's always a joy to talk with you and i'm delighted you're starting this podcast i know people are really gonna benefit from your expertise and um the impact that you're making on the world appreciate that chris all right see you next time all right take care happy new year Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <music>